0: Well, friends, what we have before us today is a passage that has confused a lot of people over the years and has been a topic of hot debate among many Christians. It's that famous passage in 1 Corinthians about head coverings. No doubt this is a hard passage, but there are a few things, three things to be in fact, that I want to remind you about before we look at this passage. Three things that I believe can help us understand what Paul is saying. And the first thing I want to say to you is don't forget chapters 1 to 10. Remember that one of Paul's pastoral concerns for this congregation was the tendency they had to look to the wisdom of Corinthian culture instead of trusting in the wisdom of God. You are Christians, says Paul. The heart of the gospel is that God judges worldly wisdom. The cross is foolishness to the world. Of all the people, Christians should know better than to turn to the wisdom of the world to live our lives. And so much of his instruction in this letter is to correct their thinking, to get them to put on the mind of Christ, to be united in their judgment regarding these things. And so this ought to inform how we read 1 Corinthians eleven two to 16. Secondly, before you read this passage, don't forget 1 Corinthians 10 verses 31 to 33. That's the immediate context. So Jesus is our Redeemer. We have been bought with a price. And so the only reasonable thing for us to do and are commanded to do in response to the gospel is to glorify God in everything. So what we do, why we do it, how we do it, where we do it, with whom we do it, and even what we don't do, sends a message. It says something about the God we worship. And thirdly, bear in mind that this chapter helps us transition to chapters 12 to 14. And those chapters speak about how the Corinthians ought to lovingly use their spiritual gifts to the glory of God in order to build up the church. So we must not cut off, sever this passage from what lies ahead. And so with that in mind, Those three things in mind, please turn with me now in your copy of the Scriptures to 1 Corinthians 11, verses 2 to 16. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 to 16. And let's ask the Lord for His help as we approach His Word. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that You would now renew and sanctify our minds by Your Word. Plant Your truths deep in us. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, shape and fashion us into the likeness of our Savior. May the glory of your wisdom be manifest through the lives of men and women in this congregation as we proclaim to the world the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. On the authority of the scriptures that are inspired by God, the scriptures that are infallible and transcend all cultures, I give you, Grace Church, I give you this command. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Now go and do likewise. Build a parapet. What are you waiting for? I think we all intuitively know that there's a lot more work that needs to be done on this text before we rush to apply it. And if you're a good student of scripture, you know that we must first understand what this text from Deuteronomy 22 verse 8 meant to the people of Israel. Under what circumstances was it spoken? Uh, Where were they? What covenant were they under? Who said these words? What was this law meant to communicate? What did it say about the God that Israel worshipped and what did it say about how they were meant to relate to one another? How should we as Christians on this side of the cross, as people who are trusting in, in Jesus who fulfilled the law, how should we understand and apply this passage? Now, if you do the hard work of exegesis, biblical interpretation, you will find that the purpose of this law under the Old Covenant was to teach Israel what it meant to love the Lord and to love your fellow Israelite. And so to love the Lord meant to greatly care about the lives of your brothers that he had rescued from Egypt. In those days, people built houses with flat roofs and they spent a lot of time on those roofs. Eating, drinking, sleeping, and sometimes a person would slip or roll off the roof in their sleep and fall to their deaths. So building a parapet wall, a low wall around the border of that roof, was meant to protect the lives of your neighbors. This was an act of love and it communicated, it sent a message to the community that you cared about their well-being because you loved and worshipped the God of Israel. Well now that we know the theological principle of the command, we can now understand that the point of the text is not for us to go and start building parapet walls, necessarily, but to understand that in Christ love is the fulfilling of the law. Love does no wrong to a neighbor and the way that you apply this text today might look like this. You might need to remove all the glass items and cover all the electrical sockets in your house when your friends from church bring over their little people, their toddlers. Or if an older member comes over to your house, make sure the bathroom floor is not wet and slippery so that that they don't injure themselves in some way. And friends, I think we forget to do this work, this hard work of interpretation when we come to the New Testament. I think we forget sometimes. After all, the culture of 1st century Corinth was very different from the culture that you and I are living in. The 21st century in the UAE. So, for example, we think that wearing a cross on our necks is fine. It's a wonderful thing. Those Corinthians would have thought that we were suicidal. The cross wasn't regarded as a symbol of piety but a symbol of shame. And so when we look at this passage, we ought to take into consideration the context, what comes before, what comes after, what the whole book is about, but we must also remember that their social and cultural practices were very different. However, the thrust of the passage and the thrust of Paul's message is that while we don't want to cause Jew, Greek, or or Christians to stumble into sin, ultimately, it is God's wisdom that ought to take center stage in our public worship, even though that might be counter-cultural. And so the main point of this passage is that God is glorified. God is glorified when we uphold His design for gender roles in the church. God is glorified when we uphold His design for gender roles in the church. And I think we can learn three important truths as Paul lays it out. Number one, we can learn about the glory of God's design for his church. Number two, we will see the shame of cultural wisdom, the shame of cultural wisdom. And number three, Paul will give us the blueprints of God's design from creation and from nature. But first, let's consider the glory of God's design for His church. Look at verse 2 of chapter 11. Paul begins on a happy note. Did you know that? Verse 2, now I commend you, he says. The you is in plural. He's addressing the congregation. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. Now, reading 1 Corinthians is like listening to a one-sided conversation. So, we can hear the replies, but we don't know what the questions are. It's very confusing. So, these Corinthians wrote to Paul, asking him about certain things. And based on their report, Paul says, I hear that with regards to this particular issue, things are going mostly well. You remember whatever I taught you when I was with you, and you seem to be applying those teachings. The word traditions means teachings. They followed Paul in whatever he had taught them. They maintained the traditions. They held fast to them. And so from the context, it appears that those teachings were about the roles of men and women in public worship, in the gathered assembly. But it also seems... Not everyone followed Paul. That's what it seems like. Not everyone liked what he said. And that shouldn't be a surprise to us given all that we've read so far about the problems in the church at Corinth. We know that because of the next verse. Despite Paul's commendation, not everyone had applied those teachings well. And so he says, good job. But look at verse 3. But I want you to understand That the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God. Now this is the verse that bleeds throughout the passage. This is the controlling verse. This is what this passage is about. Headship. Headship. Paul wants us to understand that no one... Is autonomous in the household of God and this ought to be communicated to all when the church worship. God cares about gender roles in the church and before I go any further I want to define this term gender because there's so much confusion in our culture about what this means. Now the word sex is a biological category so you're either male or female. Sometimes sex, depending on the context, can also refer to sexual activity, like having sex. But gender comes from the Latin word genus, uh, which means kind or or type or class. So gender is used in languages, for example, to differentiate between words. You can have words with masculine or feminine endings. Words can have gender. But generally speaking, gender refers to biological differences between men and women. And in that sense, it's synonymous with sex. But gender can also refer to roles. It can also refer to roles that men and women have in the home and society. And this can either be influenced by culture and society, or we can take our cues from the Bible. We can take our cues from our creator who made us male and female. As Christians, We believe that the one who created us has the right and the authority to tell us what his good purposes for men and women are. He has the right to tell us how we ought to behave and relate to one one another. However, this term gender has been hijacked today. Our sinful culture has corrupted this word and now claims that our gender can be something other than our created biological sex. Gender is now equated with personal and sinful sexual preferences, and your sinful sexual preference is now regarded as your gender and your very identity. But friends, the Bible tells us that God created men and women as a reflection of His glory, and we were created for His glory. God created men and women equal in value and worth and dignity, but with different roles in the home and in the church, roles that complement each other. Look at the text. Paul says that the head of every man is Christ. Now, to be head over someone is to have authority over them. And what does that mean? It means you obey your head. You submit your authority. Now it's right to say that Christ is head over everyone, both men and women. So Colossians 1.18, he is the head of the body, the church. But Paul is not concerned with that. He wants us to specifically see that the way men and women relate to one another is determined by how we relate to God and how we acknowledge God's authority over us. The head of every man is Christ and the head of every wife is her husband. Now, some of you will have translations that say uh, woman instead of wife, or, or man instead of husband, and that's okay because the, the Greek word is the same for wife and woman or man and husband. It, it's, it sounds odd to us. It wasn't odd to the Greeks. So if so, Someone would just say, she is my woman, or a lady would say, he is my man. It was understood that they were husband and, and wife, and so um, the context tells us what that word means. The ESV translators chose wife because of the context and because of what Paul teaches us in Ephesians 5, 22 to 23. Wives, submit not to every man, but to your own husbands as to the Lord. Why? For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And then he says this, And the head of Christ, the head of Messiah, that's what that word means, is God. Is God. Now, this does not mean that Christ is inferior to the Father in essence. But the word Christ or Messiah refers to the Son's activity as our Redeemer, as the Son of God incarnate. And Scripture tells us that He submitted to His Father. He obeyed the Father's will. Friends, if this headship was not in place, we would not be Christians. At the heart of the gospel... At the heart of the wisdom of the cross is that the Almighty Son of God, equal to the Father and the Spirit, was sent by the Father. He took on flesh. He obeyed the Father's will. He died in the place of sinners for all who would repent and believe in Him. You see, the Bible teaches that when we live for our glory, we dishonor God. And for that, we will suffer eternal shame under God's judgment. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that He took our sins and our shame. He died in our place and He rose from the dead so that we might no longer live for ourselves, but for His glory. Friend, if you're not a Christian, you should know that God, this God whom we're talking about, this God made you. He created you. He has a purpose for your life He has a purpose for you if you're a man. He has a purpose for you if you're a woman. You were created to glorify Him. But you have turned to your own way, to your own wisdom. But you can be saved. You can be reconciled to God if you repent of your sins and turn to Christ. This is how the gospel saves us. This is how God saves us. By sending His Son who obeys the Father's will, who reconciles us to God. And so, friends, to be in Christ, to be united to this one by faith means to recognize God's authoritative degree to, to decree and His wise design concerning the roles of men and women, husbands and wives. This is how we flourish under the rule of our Savior. These gender distinctions, these differences in roles and responsibilities Reflect the nature and the glory of God Himself. Now, why does Paul remind them of these differences? Think about that. Because some of them were dishonoring these distinctions because they wanted to be like the culture around them. And so Paul addresses how these roles were disregarded in their worship. And that brings us to our second point, the shame of cultural wisdom. Look at verse 4. Every man, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. So this is not just a problem with the women. I hope you can see that in the text. This is not just about women not covering their heads and getting some things wrong. Even the men are getting some things wrong. They were covering their heads. And by doing this, Paul says that they were dishonoring their head, who is Christ. They were bringing shame on Christ instead of glorifying Him. And the reason they were doing this was because they had become enamored with cultural practices. We know that Paul is addressing cultural issues because there's nothing inherently sinful about a piece of cloth on your head. Just like meat sacrifice to an idol is nothing in and of itself. Think about the priests in the Old Testament. They covered their heads with turbans while they ministered in the tabernacle. And so you know that something else is going on. You see, at Corinth, it was common to see men covering their heads with their togas while they worshipped at their temples. This is how pagans worshipped. The toga was a loose cloth that men would drape around their shoulder and body. But these kind of head coverings were often worn by the the, the social elite. So in those days, the emperor Augustus was depicted on a coin with his head covered. And so it's possible that these men covered their heads to appear pious to communicate their social status. They ended up demonstrating solidarity with pagan cultural practices. And Paul says to do this in public worship is to bring shame to Christ and not glory. But did you notice in the text when this is a problem? When he prays or prophesies, Underline that. That's when he's covering his head. And Paul says, don't do that. Why is that significant? I think a lot of people fail to see when they read this passage that the head covering or the lack of it is called into question when praying or prophesying and not at other times. Now, what do those terms mean? And why are they mentioned together in that way? Why are they mentioned together in that way? Now, I'm going to be very brief here. You'll hear more about this as we get to chapters 12 to 14. But Paul here is speaking of inspired speech. Speech that is revelatory in nature. In other words, this phrase, praise or prophesize, represents what happens when the revelatory gifts of prophecy and praying in tongues are practiced. They were often practiced together. So in chapter 14, Paul deals with these two gifts together, and rightly so, because they are revelatory gifts. Beloved, a spiritual gift is a gift of grace. It is a manifestation of the Holy Spirit in the believer, and what each believer gets is entirely up to the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. That's 1 Corinthians 12, verse 11. And those gifts are given for the common good, for the building up of the body of Christ, not for your personal glory. When a person prophesies, he speaks what God has revealed to him. It comes with God's authority. It is His inspired, infallible declaration of truth. Now, a prophecy can be a declaration of God's Word, a forthtelling, or it can be a foretelling, a prediction of something to come. Some prophecies get written down and some prophecies are not. But they are true. They are the revelation of God's Word. It's not something that men cook up on their own, but God speaks through His servants. This is why the prophets in the Old Testament would preface their prophecies with the words, thus saith the Lord. What the prophet says is what God is saying. Now what I'm doing right now is not prophesying. I'm preaching. I'm taking the words that have already been revealed. This is inscripturated prophecy. And I'm explaining it to you. I'm not a prophet. Now when a person spoke in a tongue, he also spoke God's revelation or prayed God's revelation in a language that he previously did not know. Which is why the Holy Spirit gave them another gift. The gift of interpretation of tongues. Now, once a tongue is interpreted, you can understand God's revelation. And once you can understand God's revelation, what you're hearing is prophecy. Interpreted tongues are prophecies. Which is why in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the disciples, and you remember they began speaking in tongues, speaking God's word in languages understood by those who passed by. The text says they were declaring the mighty works of God, And when that happened, Peter says, this is a fulfillment of Joel 2.28. In the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on all flesh, not just a select few, and your sons and your daughters will what? Prophesy. But wait a minute. They're speaking in tongues. Yes. So why did Peter understand it to be a fulfillment? Because they understood, and when tongues are interpreted or understood, what you have is prophecy. So, look at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13, 1 Corinthians 14, verse 13, therefore, one who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret, why? For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. What does that mean? It means that I can't understand it if it's not interpreted. So this praying or prophesying here in chapter 11, verse 4 and 5 is not about praying in general, like what I did right before the sermon or what many of you men and women did at the Good Friday service. No, this was an authoritative proclamation of divine revelation. These were miraculous gifts. These were sign gifts. Not everyone had them. And they were given in the foundational years of the church, in the apostolic age. Ephesians 2.20 says the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And once the foundation was laid, these revelatory gifts ceased. Hebrews 1 tells us That God spoke to us in many ways before, but in these last days, He has spoken to us in His Son. The Son is the full and final revelation of God. And God used these sign gifts to bear witness to the truthfulness of His revealed Word. Spectacular ways. Witness to the full and final revelation concerning His Son. Look at Hebrews 2, verses 3 to 4. This is how the writer speaks of this revelation. He speaks of it in this way. It was declared at first by the Lord, that's Jesus, and it was attested to us, that's the Hebrews, attested by who? By those who heard, that's the apostles, while God also bore witness, how? By signs and wonders and various gifts and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Friends, this was a time when God's revelation was still being given and the sign gifts have ceased since we have the completed Scriptures. Now, there are many good-hearted Bible-believing Christians who will disagree with me, and that's okay. But I think Scripture itself gives us sound theological reasons for the cessation of these sign gifts. And if you want to hear more about that, come back next week and the week after that. But here's the point. When people got up in front and they did something spectacular like this, like praying or prophesying in public worship, it put the spotlight on the speaker. And Paul is concerned that when men and women do this, they ought to do so in a manner that honors God's roles for them in the church so that God would be glorified. Now, the women were also yielding to the culture. How? By not covering their heads. Look at verse 5. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, that's her husband, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. See, Paul says this because it was considered shameful in that culture for a woman to shave her hair or cut it short. It had many negative associations. Short hair was frequently associated with lesbians, shaved heads with pagan priestesses, Plus, in that day, there was a movement among women at Corinth who were flaunting their sexual freedom. It was known and accepted in that society that, that men, husbands, would sleep around with other women, but it was required that the women, the wives, be chaste. And so there was a growing number of discontent women who threw off their head coverings, which would have been considered a sign of a married woman. They threw off their head coverings and started to say, well, we're free, we too can sleep around with whoever we want. This was women empowerment in their day. Women were saying, we don't need to be under the authority of our husbands or men in general. But these Christian women in the church at Corinth, they were declaring God's words. Now the Old Testament does record for us that women too served God as His prophetesses. But they were rare. We have Miriam, the sister of Moses, who was a prophetess. Uh, Deborah in Judges. Huldah was a prophetess at the time of King Josiah. In the New Testament, we read of Anna who rejoiced when Jesus was presented at the temple. There's also the mention of four unmarried daughters of Philip in Acts 21, verse 9, who prophesied. But friends, the glory of the new covenant was something else. God was doing remarkable things, pouring out his spirit on all flesh, on all who belonged to him. They were bearing witness to his word with these sign gifts, both men and women. And so Paul was concerned that Christian wives, while declaring God's authoritative word, should not send a wrong signal to the community that they themselves did not submit to their husband's authority. So it was important that a woman in this unique period of sign gifts to make sure that she did not communicate in any way that she was usurping her husband's authority or scorning her role as a wife. Look at verse 6. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. Meaning, if she refuses, which some women were obviously doing, then she might as well cut her hair off. Paul saying, if you're going to reject your God-given role, you might as well reject the appearance of femininity. And then he says this, but since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. Let her cover her head. While praying or prophesying, a woman must do so in a way that glorifies God. Friends, this is a beautiful picture of the gospel. Ephesians 5 24, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. If you are going to be declaring God's revelation as a prophetess up front for the edification of the body, then humility matters. Your submissiveness ought to be visibly acknowledged in some way. This was a time when the new covenant had been inaugurated. Jesus had ascended. He had sent the Holy Spirit to mark the dawning of the age of the Spirit. God was doing remarkable things to bear witness to the truthfulness of the word of the cross. And Paul was concerned that even though men and women are one in Christ Jesus, they were to reflect an order in their relationships. In order to glorify God and the gospel in public worship. If there was not such order in God's grand design, if the Father had not sent the Son, if the Son did not submit to the Father's will and die for us on the cross, if the Spirit was not sent by both Father and Son to indwell believers and to apply the saving benefits of Christ's work to us by faith, we wouldn't be able to worship Him in the first place. But how exactly does this work? What is the theology behind the practice? You see what's happening. For men, the countercultural thing to do was to not cover their heads. For Christian wives, the countercultural thing to do was to cover their heads. And Paul says, both these practices are not rooted in culture. They're rooted in theology. So what is the theology behind the practice? And that brings us to our third point. Paul gives us the blueprints for this glorious design in creation and nature. Look at verse 7. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Paul here takes us back to the account of creation in Genesis 1 and 2. The first book of the law where we are told that God created Adam in his image, in his likeness, to be a crowning display of his creation, to rule as his vice-regent, to exercise dominion and fill and subdue the earth. Psalm 8 verses 5 to 6 tells us that man was made a little lower than the heavenly beings. He was crowned with glory and honor. Adam did not have a human father or mother. He was created directly by God to make much of His Creator. Don't cover your head. God has crowned you with glory. He made you directly. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, at first glance, that sounds a little confusing, doesn't it? Well, weren't Adam and Eve both created in the image of God? Aren't they equal in value and dignity as God's image bearers? Weren't they tasked with fulfilling His purposes together? Well, that's certainly true. So then why does He say that the woman, He's referring to Eve, why does He say she is the glory of man? Well, the next verse answers that for us. Here's the reason why. Thank you, Paul. Verses 8 to 9. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. See, this is similar to 1 Timothy 2.13. You remember that passage? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. See, God created Adam directly and firstly. And then He created Eve from a rib taken from Adam's side. So the woman's raw materials, as it were, came from Adam. She was made from him. Adam played a part, an unconscious part, in her creation. In fact, that's why she is called a woman. Do you remember? Adam rejoices over her and he says in Genesis 2:23, she shall be called woman. Why? Because she was taken out of man. Adam's headship is demonstrated as he names his new companion. But Paul also says, look at verse 9, Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. Paul says the reason Eve was created was to be a helper to Adam, to be his worthy and complementary counterpart, to help him fulfill God's glorious purposes. So origin determines purpose. And this is what he means when he says she is the glory of man. The wife brings honor to her husband, by recognizing her divine design and role. See, God has established a distinct order in men and women's roles. See, this text is mainly about husbands and wives because the larger context, when you get to chapter 14, it seems to suggest that it's mostly the wives who were straying. And this order that Paul is, is talking about is reflective of the way God created man and woman. And friends, when we acknowledge those differences... We glorify God. God is made much of because it's a reflection of His own triune glory. And that is why, look at what he says in verse 10, that is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. The text literally says she ought to have authority on her head. And this, of course, refers to the covering that Paul has been arguing for the covering sends a message that even though the wife is carrying out this lofty task of proclaiming God's revelation through these spectacular gifts, she is under her husband's authority. She is covered, not because she's in the presence of men, but because she's in the presence of God in corporate worship. But that's not the only reason. The text also says she ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Now that's a curious phrase. And many commentators on this text confess it's so obscure that it's hard to determine what it means. However, I do think that when the church gathers for worship, Hebrews 12.22 tells us that we are lifted up in the Spirit to the heavenly Jerusalem, in the presence of innumerable angels in festal gathering. Angels are the guardians of God's created order. They are God's ministers. They're here right now. And so it could be that Paul is saying, be careful, this is no small matter. If you remember in the Old Testament, the law, God's revelation, God's divine revelation was mediated Through angels. And so in the matter of prophecy, it's very possible that Paul is saying that these angels are concerned about God's glory in this matter when women pray and prophesy. Now given the way Paul urges these gender distinctions to be maintained in worship, it's also possible that some people were thinking that this meant that women were inferior to men. And so Paul corrects that. Yes, she ought to have authority over her head. Look at verses 11 to 12. Nevertheless, in the Lord, in Christ, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. Paul says we need one another, clearly as husbands and wives, but even more broadly, as brothers and sisters in Christ, as members of his body. And even this can be seen in God's creative design. Look at verse 12, for as woman was made from man, we saw that in the Genesis account, so man is now born of woman. This is the way things have been after the first couple was created. Every man is born of woman. You remember how Eve confessed this when she gave birth to Cain? Genesis 4.1, she said, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Friends, God has divinely ordained this interdependency as Christian men and women. And the more we recognize and give attention to our distinct roles, the more we will be able to confess that God is the ultimate origin of all things. Or, as the text says, and all things are from God. Friends, ultimately, we do all things for His glory, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. And that's Romans eleven thirty six. But Paul doesn't leave it there. No, he does what he did in chapter 10, verse 15. As sensible people, he wants them to judge these things for themselves. And so he asks them to use their common sense. And he asks them these rhetorical questions. Look at verses 13 to 15. Judge for yourselves, he says. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? The answer, of course, is no. It's not proper. It's not fitting. It's inappropriate. It doesn't communicate well about what we believe about God's glory. Verse 14. Does not nature itself teach you? By nature, he means our natural characteristics, the way God has naturally endowed us. Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it's a disgrace to him? Answer, yes it is. And this is true, isn't it? It's weird to see a man with long hair. He would look like a woman. The point is not to argue about exceptions like Absalom or Samson. You think Paul didn't know about that? The point is not to argue about exceptions. How long is too long? The point is God created men and women with different physical characteristics. Our hormones play a huge role in this. In Corinth, guys with long hair were considered effeminate or homosexual. And Paul says it's weird if a dude has long hair. It's shameful. Verse 15, but if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. Paul says it's wonderful. It's very feminine. Here's what that means it's a good and glorious thing for a woman to look like a woman. That's what the Holy Spirit says. Long hair is her glory, it is an honor to her. And here's why for her her hair is given to her by who? By God for a covering. Isn't that interesting? Paul's argument is basically this. If long hair on a woman's head is given to her for a covering, if that's just normal, that should give you a clue that it's right and glorifying to God if she covers her hair, her head, while praying and prophesying. It's an argument from nature. But it was also what was practiced in churches everywhere in the first century. And so Paul says this to those who were quarreling, bickering about this. He says this, look at verse 16. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, sometimes people will look at this verse and say what Paul means is that if people start arguing about this, then let's just ditch this whole idea of head coverings. It doesn't matter. That's not what he means. He couldn't possibly mean that after laying such an extensive foundation for it. No, he means that if you want to argue about this, you should know that you are in the minority. We have no such practice or custom like the one you're advocating, nor do other churches. There was a good and glorious theological reasons for women covering their heads while praying and prophesying. Don't forget that. So, what does all of this mean for us today? Furthermore, if the gifts of prophecy and speaking in tongues have ceased, does this mean there's nothing to learn from this passage? Absolutely not. I think the theological principles in this passage have plenty to teach us. And so, let me give you three ways that this passage matters for us today. Here's what we can learn. Number one, God cares about how we worship Him. That should be obvious from reading this text. God cares about how we worship Him. He desires that His glory and the beauty of the gospel ought to be front and center in our worship services. Our public worship should not seek to be a display of the wisdom of the world, but the wisdom of God. Ephesians 3.10 says that God's eternal purpose, which He has realized through Jesus Christ, is this. That through the church, his manifold wisdom would be displayed to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. And this includes how husbands and wives, men and women, relate to one another and conduct themselves. So in the church, God calls qualified men, not every man, qualified men to lead and teach and shepherd the flock. You remember 1 Timothy 2, verse 12? I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, for Adam was created first. The office of elder, pastor, is for biblically qualified men. And interestingly and appropriately, men who are not living up to their God-assigned roles in their homes are disqualified to serve as elders. You see that in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. And so we want to make sure that the ministry of the Word and oversight, the exercise of authority in the act of shepherding and leading, is done by humble and faithful men who bow their heads to Jesus and His Word. Friends, that's the kind of church in which Christian women thrive and flourish to the glory of God. Here's the second thing we can learn. Equality doesn't mean sameness. Equality doesn't mean sameness. Galatians 3.28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So with regards to our standing before Jesus Christ, there is no difference Men and women are both indwelt by the Spirit and are co-heirs of grace. But that does not mean, listen carefully, that does not mean that we display God's glory in the same way. God in His infinite wisdom has given us different roles in the home and in the church. Men as husbands are called to be heads of their homes. Spiritual leaders, they are called to provide and to protect and to love their wives, lay down their lives, deny themselves, just like Jesus. But don't forget, men are also called to be sons and brothers and fathers. I want to mention those three other roles so that you don't see everything through the lens of the marriage relationship. Women, as wives, are called to submit to their own husbands. This is the submission of equals. The wife is equal in value and worth, and yet she calls to submit to her husband out of love for Christ, just like Christ did to his father. Wives are called to respect their husbands, to be spiritual helpers to their husbands, work hard at home, raise their children, disciple other women at church. But don't forget, women are also called to be daughters and sisters and mothers. Unlike a certain Supreme Court judge, who I shall name, leave unnamed, we know how to define a woman. And we know how to define a man. And we want to make sure that we glorify God under appropriate authority structures. Sons and daughters under their fathers. Wives under their husbands. Husbands under their elders. Elders subject to the word of Christ. Accountable to other elders and to the congregation. Scripture tells us how we are to relate to one another in the church. 1 Timothy 5, 1-2. Treat older men as fathers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. Friends, in our visible public worship, our women, if you haven't noticed already, let me tell you, our women, they sing, they play music, they serve on the welcome team. They teach in children's ministry. They serve as ushers. At other times they teach other women. Our women are everywhere. And we cannot do without them. They are co-heirs and co-priests. But you will not see them up front leading worship. Or teaching. Or preaching. Or leading the congregation in prayer. Even during our special Christmas services when women read Scripture, they just read. I don't know if you noticed that. They just read. They don't teach it or explain it. We have men do that. That's purposeful. That's purposeful because we want God to be glorified in our public worship through the roles He's given us. Finally, number three, how we dress matters. How we dress matters. Clearly, Paul thought so when it came to the issue of head coverings in public worship. In later letters like 1 Timothy and 1 Peter, where spiritual gifts are not being discussed, the apostles are still giving attention to how we dress. Friends, our clothes say something about our hearts and our relationship to God we ought to dress modestly in ways that is proper for men and women who profess Christ. Our clothes send a message. It either communicates that we fear God and are captivated by the glory of Christ or that we disregard His Word and are captivated by our own desires, by the glory of self. And of course, dressing in this way will involve the exercise of self-control The killing of self interest. If you want to hear more about this, I'd urge you to go to our website and listen to those two sermons on modesty, November 2021. Brothers and sisters, we do not want to do anything that would detract from the glory of God in our public services. We're called to worship Him together to the praise of His glory and not our own. Let's pray. Lord, we confess our self-centeredness and our fascination with all that is worldly. Forgive us, O Lord. Cleanse us and cause our hearts to be captivated by the glory of our Savior. Let your kingdom come. Let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Be glorified in our midst, we pray. Amen.